from the Townsend Center for the Humanities at UC Berkeley. Welcome to Berkeley Book Chats. I'm Timothy Hampton, director of the Townsend Center for the Humanities. Berkeley Book Chats showcase a Berkeley faculty member engaged in a public conversation about a recently completed work. This popular series highlights the richness of Berkeley's academic community. Today's conversation features Anthony Long of the Classics Department discussing his book, How to Be Free, An Ancient Guide to the Stoic Life. He is joined by me, Timothy Hampton, of the Comparative Literature and French Departments. It's a great pleasure to welcome Anthony Long here to talk about his newest publication. Um, I should say I, I'm here not as uh, an ancient Greek, nor as a classicist, nor as a philosopher, but as someone who really enjoys reading what is often called wisdom literature or practical moral philosophy. Um, this book is called How to Be Free. It's a translation and bilingual edition with notes of the Enchiridion, which is a kind of handbook of the first century philosopher Epictetus, along with some selections from Epictetus's discourses. And, it, and as you can see, I think this is a, a real selling point. It's a perfect book to put in your pocket and take with you as you go through life. And I've been carrying it around in my pocket, so I, I, I recommend it for its presentation as well as for its content. <clears throat> and as, as I was saying, <clears throat> Um, I'm someone who likes reading this kind of stuff. I'm a, I'm, I'm a big fan of the, the, the hand oracle of the 17th century uh, Spanish Jesuit, Baltazar Gracian, who teaches you how to survive at court, which is a book I always recommend to, to department chairs. Um, and, and, and I'm a reader of Montaigne's essays. But I have to confess that this book took me by surprise. Um, it seems quite unique in, in many ways. And it seemed quite different from most of the ancient philosophy and moral philosophy that I've read. And not only marquee names like, like Plato, but also texts like Seneca's letters and, and, and Cicero's um, De Officiis, and, and even Marcus Aurelius's meditations in a way. So I'm wondering if we could begin by asking you, Tony, just to tell us a bit about the context for this book and sort of what it is as a kind of genre and sort of what it, where it comes from. Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Tim, and thank you also uh, for having me here. Um, I mean, compared with all the great books that are being talked about this this semester, this is, this is a tiny book, and I'm not really its author at all. I mean, Epictetus is, is the author, except that in a certain sense he isn't too. So I let me just explain who a little bit about that. Uh, Epictetus uh, was uh, born in central, what we call central Turkey in about the um, year uh, 50 or so of our era. And he was pr probably a slave from birth. And he, he, he made his way to Rome, or others made him go to Rome, I mean, because he, he hardly had uh, much autonomy of movement at that stage. And um, he was in the household of the uh, uh, very bad emperor Nero, uh, uh, and became the, the house slave of uh, a man called Epic. Paphroditus, who, who himself had, was an emancipated slave, and realized, I think, that uh, Epictetus was very smart and made sure that he got a good education. And while he was in Rome, uh, this early life, he came under the influence of a, another uh, uh, eminent Roman called Musonius um, Rufus, who had, um, was also a Stoic philosopher and highly critical of, um, of, of, of Nero and other emperors. 
And in due course, Epictetus got, got his own freedom um, and, um, and, and then was exiled along with some other uh, 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 dissidents, that we could call them dissidents, and under the, uh, another very bad emperor called Domitian. Um, <laughs> I think came back to Rome briefly, then went back out, out again and set up a school in northwestern Greece in a little uh, city called Nicopolis, which become quite a fashionable sort of watering hole in, the, in this period. Um, and then became a very celebrated uh, teacher. Uh, uh, one of his perhaps greatest students, if not in person, but certainly through uh, reading about him, uh, was Marcus Aurelius. And so one of the great sort of, you know, kind of almost a romantic thing about, about these characters is that here you have the most powerful man in the world, Marcus Aurelius, emperor, uh, learning from the, the ex-slave. And this has always been sort of, you know, captured people's imagination. Uh, Epictetus lectured, he lectured to young men, and I think it's important when we, we read uh, uh, the, the, his, his teaching to realize that his audience, they're not middle-aged fogies, they're, they're young men. I mean, and by, by young, we probably mean late teenage people who are sort of on the brink of uh, maybe going to the army or having some other, you know, uh, career. Kids of, of, of wealthy parents, um, and we've, we've heard a bit about how wealthy parents get their kids into schools, <laughs> and I think it, was, it clearly was quite something to become his student. Now, one of his great students uh, is the man who, in some ways, is the, is the kind of author, or at least editor of this work. He was a Roman, uh, an eminent Roman called Arian, a uh, young man himself at the time, and then he went on to become a very major uh, figure. Uh, he became a provincial governor um, and a, a, a very accomplished author. And uh, interestingly, he wrote um, the, the most detailed history that we have of Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great is about as remote as you might think of from a, a you know, a, a, a sort of uh, back, back uh, you know, Backwards Stoic. So, so, um, so Arian then heard Epictetus uh, and made an enormously detailed, uh, it seems like an almost a, a stenographic record of his teaching. We, and we have the four of the eight, eight books of discourses. And then he wrote a sort of a synopsis of these. And that's what we call the manual, which is enchiridion is a, is a Greek word meaning a handbook. Um, and so that part of what's in here is this little set of 53, sort of sometimes they're almost like haikus, these little sort of to-do, um, uh, uh, very, very punchy, and, uh, and, and no doubt we'll talk about that. Um, and then I, and then, um, uh, and that then became a very celebrated, and so you know, it, it was translated in the, into Latin in the end of the seven, uh, 15th century, and then became sort of part of, uh, very much part of European, and then eventually in the New World, uh, in, in, in America, I mean, Apparently, Thomas Jefferson had some idea of actually sure. translating Epictetus. Um, and he comes up quite often in, um, in, um, in 19th century American literature, where Walt Whitman uh, said that his teaching is so much needed in a materialistic and affluent age. And, uh, and I think another thing we might sort of, you know, be interesting to talk about a bit is the sort of um, similarities as well as differences between the, the Roman epoch, which Epictetus uh, was uh, teaching in, which was you know, probably as, as uh, affluent an era, you know, what Gibbon described, the, the era of the, the emperors of this time as the perhaps the happiest period of, hum, of human history. 
Uh, I mean, that, one can obviously challenge that, but that was, that was Gibbon's 17th century judgment on this, this period of time. Um, and it would be interesting, I think, to, uh, to see how, how we think that this uh, fits. And the other just thing to, to moment, I mean, one of the reasons I was quite eager to, um, to have you as an audience for this little book is, is because Stoicism, as many of you may know, ancient Stoicism is having an, a rather extraordinary cultural moment. Um, if you go online, if you just uh, Google Stoicism, I mean, you'll, you'll, ha you'll find the most extraordinary things. Stoicism for businessmen. Um, uh, 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 stoicism for mums. I mean, it's, 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 it's an extraordinary moment. And what we think of that and just why, why this, in many ways, you know, high, highly sort of austere kind of regimen that Epictetus uh, tells us we should try to practice. What, what is it that's giving it this sort of cachet at the moment? I think. Fantastic. Um, I, I see a, in, in university parlance, I see an opportunity for revenue generation. Absolutely. So could you, one of the things that struck me in reading the text is the emphasis on the, the theme of self-possession. Right. That seems to be central to Epictetus. Could you talk a little bit about what that is and sort of where it comes from? Absolutely. I mean, the, 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 the very first of these um, uh, uh, little uh, perçu in the manual starts off with by saying, you know, there are some things that are uh, up to us and there are other things that are not up to us. And, and the, the things that are not up to us are even your body, uh, certainly your, your, your career, uh, your, uh, your, your you know, uh, possessions. Uh, so what is up to you? And he, he characterizes it as, well, we would say in, in modern English, I think simply your mind, your, 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 your mental states, your, 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 your emotions, th those he thinks are up to you. And when he says these other things are not up to us, that's of course obviously hyperbolical in some sense. I mean, your body doesn't simply disobey you every moment. But, I mean, clearly, I mean, there is a moment in sense in which our bodies are in partly dependent on forces outside our own control. So this idea of, of what you might call self-possession um, probably, I mean, goes back at least, you know, in, in the history of early Greek philosophy to, um, to, 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 the, to, to Socrates, the Plato Socrates, uh, the Socrates of the Apology, who, who said, you know, apparently according to Plato, that, uh, 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 that no, no harm can come to the, to the good man in life or in death. And this idea that somehow it's your, your soul, as, he, as Socrates put it, which is your, your special possession. And, uh, you know, yes, you can be put in prison, you can be condemned to death, as Socrates was. Epictetus loves to take the Socratic example and, uh, and, and say Socrates was not in prison because he was there by his own choice. Right. And famously, Socrates is supp supposedly could have actually escaped the, the sentence of death and um, you know, been sort of whisked out of Athens. Uh, he, so in other words, when Epictetus says he's in prison by his own choice, but he's not in prison because he's not mentally in prison. And that's, that's one of his standard tropes. But do you think that that, I mean, that seems to me to be one of the things that, um, that we in some way have, we moderns in some way have lost yeah. the sense yeah. of, right? Because one of the things that we, we study increasingly or we're increasingly taught in our own sort of modern critical discourses is the extent to which we don't have control oh, over who we yes. are, right? That we are structured by language or we're structured by class or we're structured by race or 
whatever, right? I mean, that's which is one of the reasons why people are so interested in the question of agency. Yeah, right. of course. What is left yes. after after the signifier and everything well, else? Well, I mean, I think along. that especially now in the um, you know in the internet age, um, the the sense in which you know media and messages are taking control of our lives. I mean, I've noticed just in the last few few months how when you, when you Google or go with Safari or whatever you go, for, whatever your uh, uh, system is, um, all kinds of stuff comes up that you don't want. And you can't even, I mean, now I'm trying to get Olski catalog for my, and, and it, 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 the, the screen keeps changing and I get something, you know, that I don't want. And that, that's happening all the time. So I think that the sense in which we're being imperceptibly uh, controlled by, by, I mean, you know, all, all this stuff about, you know, secrecy and, uh, and interference is, is, is another example of that. But yes, so I think there are certain areas in which our lives are much less directly under our control than we, we, would, we would have thought they were. So that's where the question of self-possession becomes in some ways even more crucial. Yes, yes. Would, would seem to be But otherwise. I think also, I mean, there are so many other aspects to this which we think of. I mean, are we, you know, it's perhaps quite fashionable in certain quarters to think that, you know, we, are, we don't really have any autonomy, uh, we, we're genetically determined or we're determined culturally and genetically. And so whatever we may think of our own ability to you know, influence our lives, is, is perhaps simply it's a, a brain function which is not actual. I mean, the actual, we think we're determining our own right. future, but we're not. Right. I mean, and so, uh, you know, the people who have a sort of brain identity theory of the mind uh, are, I think, very much sort of pushing, it can be seen as pushing in that sort of direction. Uh, and then there's the cultural determinism and, uh, uh, you know, where, where you're raised has somehow shaped you irrevocably. So I think the idea, uh, and, uh, you know, who knows the extent to which we, we are um, as, as free as Epictetus might want us to think, but the extent to which we perhaps feel, can feel trapped and, and that we don't somehow have, you know, can, can take charge of our own lives. I think that this is where this material is, is, can be quite challenging. So, so I just want to, uh, so my comments are mostly expressions of pleasure. Um, there's a mo beautiful moment in the 33rd um, thing where he says, and I'm quoting here, it's not things that trouble people, it's their opinions about things. Right. Montaigne says that about death. Yes, yes, yes. Um, yes, I mean, this of course, I mean, whether, whether whether Shakespeare was influenced already by Epictetus might be a little early, but I mean, uh, there's nothing in, you know, what is it, the famous saying, there, there's nothing in either good, um, good or bad, but thinking, thinking makes, makes it, it so, so. Is, is a sort of reflection right. of this. And of course, it, it isn't only Epictetus who had these thoughts. I mean, Seneca, whom you've mentioned, yeah. Yeah. Uh, was, was a favorite author for the uh, uh, people of, of uh, the 16th, 17th century. Um, and so this idea that, that actually whenever we deliberately take some action, it's, we, we've formed some kind of a judgment. It doesn't mean we've said to ourselves, I want, you know, I want to go and do this, and you, you do it. But in, in, there's a sense in which if you step back, somebody could say to you, well, why are you doing this? And you know, the simpler answer might be, oh, I, I thought it was a good thing to do, or I thought it's what I wanted to do. Uh, and then you could be asked, yes, but what do you mean by saying you wanted to do it? Did you think that it was going to be actually good for you? And so, and these are the sort of challenges that Epictetus puts with his interlocutor right. into. So you, you can kind of keep interrogating your, your 
itself, not, you know, not, not to the extent of sort of making your day <laughs> a burden, but that, that there is always this option of stepping back and saying, why am I doing this? Right. Did, I, did, I, did I really want to uh, buy this new car? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I want to ask you a bit about the language of the text. Yes. And, and, I, and <coughs> there, I'm just going to read a, a brief passage. Uh, this is on page 63. He says, and I'm quoting now, as for sex, Abstain as far as possible before marriage, and if you do go in for it, do nothing that is socially unacceptable. But don't interfere, but don't interfere with other people on account of their sex lives or criticize them, and don't broadcast your own abstinence. It's, I mean, it's a great passage, but it's also kind of amazingly straightforward and down-to-earth and colloquial, and, and your translation, I mean, when you use phrases like sex lives and broadcast. I mean, that's really contemporary uh, American um, yeah. uh, language. So could you talk a bit about the kind of linguistic um, yeah. fabric of the text and what it was like to work with that? Yeah, I think, I mean, the Epictetus is, um, he writes in the sort of Greek that uh, the, the New Testament is written in. It's what we call the koine. It was the, it was the Greek that was have spoke, spoken all over the um, Eastern Mediterranean in his, in his time. Uh, it was probably more the vernacular than Latin. Um, and it's it, short sentences, uh, I mean, very simple syntax. Uh, but th that doesn't mean there are not interesting challenges for the translator. Um, I mean, one of them, the very beginning, I think, is this phrase that you picked up, you know, where you say things are up to us, or sometimes it's translated as things are in our power. Right. But it seems to me the connotations of saying that uh, there are certain things in one's power there's a very different connotation from saying it's up to, it's up to me, because up, up to me it means also it, I'm responsible for it. But it doesn't actually mean that I have you know, some kind of power that uh, I can always bring it about. It's up to me. Uh, it, I, mean, it, I, won't, um, I won't be able to um, drink the glass unless I, I stretch out my hand. It's up to me whether I, I pick up the glass. Right. But that doesn't mean that uh, I was actually um, in a position not to pick up the. I mean, I could still be determined by my antecedents and my, by all kinds of other things. So, so that was that's one for that. The, the trickiest word I think to translate here is actually the, the word I've translated by by will. Um, and uh, I mean, the, the freedom. Footnote, you have a note about I, that. I at do. The end, yeah. And and the Greek word that's in the rather cumbrous word. It's the Greek word is prohiresis which is a sort of rather elaborate word, which might often be translated as choice. Um, and it, it sometimes it is translated by moral choice. I, actually, I think there's very little about what we might think of as, as morality in, in this work. It's, it, it's much less, I think, a, it's very little moralizing. At all. And, uh, so so I translated it as will because it seemed to me that was exactly really what he was talking about. Uh, so there are these little, little, uh, not so little, but I mean, in a number of words and phrases which you know you can interpret in different ways. And uh, so, as a translator, what I really wanted to do was to say, well, what's what's the most natural English uh, for 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 you know for what what he what he's trying to talk about here? And not worry too much if somebody says, well, what kind of a concept of the will does he have? Because that's a big fraught area in in, in philosophy. Well, it's the everyday expression, I think, that's the right one for. But I, I like very much this idea that there's very little moralizing. Yeah. There is very little right. moralizing. And it seems like a kind of technical manual, yeah. if it's anything, yeah. about a, a yeah. sort of techniques for controlling the self. Yeah, I mean, he's not, if he's saying, you know, 
if you want to, uh, you know, put yourself at risk all the time, that's up to you. I mean, it, it's a kind of conditional. Yeah. There are the, you, have a, you have a choice. If you want to be free in the way I'm suggesting, then this is what you would be advised to do. But maybe you don't want to be. Maybe you want to be controlled by circumstances. Yeah. Uh, well, fine. That's up to you. So there's a sort of take it or leave it aspect right. to it there. But there's also there, there is also a kind of ethics, though, yes. in a certain sense. I mean, there's a, there's a passage. I'm jumping ahead in my qu uh, questions that I'd written down. There's a moment uh, uh, that's quite wonderful where he's, he's talking about criticizing others, right? And this is in number 45. And he says, I'm quoting here, if people bathe in a hurry, don't criticizing them for bathing, but for doing it quickly. If they drink too much, don't criticize them for drinking, but for doing too much of it. Until you know their reasons, how do you know they acted wrongly? Yes. So there is a kind of, there, there's a kind of judgment that's also not judgment at the same time in a particular kind no, that, of way. That's exactly right. I mean, I think Epictetus, I mean, part of his regimen is, is to be very careful about language. I mean, so he says, you're, you're in a crowd, you say, what a nuisance, how horrible all these people are. Well, change your language. Say, yes. no, it's, it's a festival. Um, it's a nice day. And, 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 but I think what's set this, it sounds sort of hokey when you just put it that way. And he's deliberately sort of, I would say, hokey. Because I think what he's trying to say is there are things we can do to transform our outlook, which are very simple. And our language is colors so much of our feelings. And you know, so as soon as you say this person, uh, you know, you, you've been extremely rude to me, and you, you know, you're at once in a confrontational situation. And, you, and he, two things he would say to that, I think, is, well, that was how he wanted to be, but how how you respond is up to you. <laughs> you, you know, and if if he if he wants to be rude, fine, that's his business, but you don't have to respond in a certain way. And so I think, and again, you know, and whether you call it rude or not would be again a, a matter of your choice. Um, so, th the one of the longest um, sections, and what I found most one of the most interesting ones, is the section number twenty nine, where he talks about the nature of action. And mm -hmm. you just now mentioned the, the the idea of antecedents. And he says, he says that before you act, you should first study the kind of antecedent to every action, mm -hmm. and you should study the potential consequences, and then you should decide whether you want to act. And his example is, do you want to win a medal in the Olympics? Right, yes. Do you want to be an Olympic champion? So you first you have to consider what's, up, what's upstream. Then you have to say, what's, what is it going to involve? I'm going to have to work out. I'm going to have to lose some weight. I'm going to have to do all this stuff. Uh, and then if you want to do it, do it, right? So, and so far, so good. But what surprised me in that same um, section was then he segues into a second problem, which is if you want to be a philosopher, right? He goes from if you want to be an Olympic champion to if you want to be a philosopher. And he yes. says, if you want to be a philosopher, you got to think about what you're going to do, what, who are the antecedents, what, what are the consequences, and so on and so forth. And he says, and then you can be a philosopher. And what struck me about that was it seemed to me that if I wanted to be a philosopher, you don't know what being a philosopher is until you're actually a philosopher, right? Mm -hmm. You can kind of imagine what being an Olympic champion would be because you've seen other people, but there's a certain difference between being a, and what if I decide that I want to be a philosopher and I'm really unhappy right. yes. in the philosophy yes. department, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, 
I mean, first of all, I was, could you just say a few things about the kind of amazing juxtaposition? I mean, it was amazing to me, maybe because I'm out of the context of like Olympics and philosophy. That seems like an interesting juxtaposition. And then also this idea that maybe you go, maybe you go in and then you, when you get in halfway, you say, uh-oh, big mistake. There were a lot of philosophers around, or at least you know, people who <laughs> claimed to be philosophers, ah. people who would sort of have certain kinds of, they would have a, a certain sort of beard, and some other kind of accoutrements uh, that would make you think that they, you know, they were a philosopher. And so he's in these later parts of the manual, he's extremely sort of coy about that. I mean, if you are really trying to be a philosopher, well, kind of keep it your keep it keep keep quiet about it. Yes. Don't don't say anything about it. Yes. Don't don't show off yes. about it. Yes. Um, and I, I mean, I think that. Uh, in the in the longer discourses, there's a great deal of um, emphasis on how people sort of think they've mugged up all their stoic textbooks and they're going to get a, a straight A or A you know A plus in their in their stoic exam. And that's not actually what's involved in trying to be a philosopher. You're trying to be a philosopher is actually trying very hard to live a certain kind of life. Yeah. And whether you know you pass the exam or not is not the not the yeah. not the most yeah. important thing. Um, so there's a lot of sort of rather, rather coy jokes, I think, like, at the expense yeah. of the, the would-be yeah. philo professional philosophers. Yeah, and he says at one point something, there's a gr wonderful little reflection on silence where he says, if you go to a party and everybody's making fun of philosophers and you don't say anything, then you're being a philosopher, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly, yes. <laughs> Yes, that's a very good. That's the first. That's your first step into the philosophical yes, life yeah. is to let everybody humiliate philosophers at a party and not say anything. Yes, yeah. and I mean just to come back to the um, point you mentioned before about uh, you know where he's sort of t saying you know don't, don't go on about your own sex life and don't worry about other people's. Uh, I mean I think that one way in fact it, it, people don't perhaps always appreciate when you read Epictetus, he has this sort of mordant, sometimes rather grim, but I think a certain, certain sense of humor in almost every one of these little passages. Yeah. They're not all to be taken at straight value. In fact, very few of them, I think, yeah. are to be taken without some sort of sense of, oh, yes, you know, well, that's a bit extreme. Well, of course it is. That's one, you know, I want to catch your attention. Right. So it's, it's, it's in some sense kind of an attention-grabbing book, yeah. challenging you all the time, I think. So this is just a question of information. Um, is uh, is he citing? I mean, I'm thinking. Uh, I always when reading this. I was always thinking of Seneca's letters, which we read together a few years ago, mm -hmm. where Seneca always ends his letters by quoting usually something from Epicurus or somebody. He'll say, "Let's let's have a little aphorism here at the end of uh, at the end of this letter." Yes. He doesn't seem to be citing people at all, or is he citing people without saying that he's citing? No, I think very little of that. I mean, what we think was happening was, you know, when Arian was his student. Um, what happened in the morning was that Epictetus really put on his sort of philosophical uh, garb, as it were, and, and really lectured on technical points of, of Stoic philosophy and would say, you know, well, Chrysippus had said, said this and Zeno had said that and, and this, this challenge came and, and answered. And then in the afternoon, as it were, when they, they'd done the formal teaching, that was when he, he sort of applied the teaching to everyday situations. I mean, there's a wonderful example. I didn't put it in this this little book, because I had to be very selective. But there's a, an example of where Epictetus, um, a friend of his, has come by and, uh, and said, you know, my, my, my daughter was terribly sick, and I couldn't bear to see her, you know, in, in, in the bedroom. I, I just had to leave. 
And, and Epictetus says, um, you thought that's how a father should behave, did you? Well, he says, uh, the, the, guy, the guy says, well, it, it's natural, isn't it? I mean, you know, I was so upset to see her in that way. Well, yes, but what do you mean by it's natural? You, know, you, you mean it's right to do that? Was this the kind of thing a father should do? You know, in other words, shouldn't you really be staying by the bedside, you know, no, no matter what? And so, so that kind of everyday situation is, is, um, is one, again, where, you know, where the sort of challenges for what one might think of as a, a natural behavior, as, as conventional, perhaps, or one, well, we can sympathize with him, yes, but, but what was the right thing to do? So, well, that's, that's another question that I had for you, which is, uh, was partly a question about the role of custom. Mm -hmm. And, and the extent to which custom matters, but also, and I guess a sort of ancillary to that, is the, is the sense that there does seem to be a kind of sense of, st of social stability, mm -hmm. so that we would know what a father would do, mm -hmm. or we would know what a philosopher would do, or what an Olympic champion would do. And I, and I was thinking of this, reading, reading this text against some of the early modern texts that I'm mm -hmm. familiar with, like Montaigne, for example, or Machiavelli, where the whole point seems to be that you may start to do something, but the circumstances may change so dramatically that what you started to do no longer, no longer has any significance, or or the conditions have changed completely. It does seem to me that he's he's building this upon a certain kind of social stability. That is Am I wrong? No, no, I think that's exactly. I mean, he, he has a word which I translated by role, role playing. Yeah, yeah. So our social roles. You know, you're a father. You're, you're a you're a, um, a university teacher, you're a soldier. So he, he sets a, along with that role, right. certain kind of norms. Right. We could call them yeah. norms, yeah. go yeah. about that. Yeah. I, mean, uh, I mean, just as, as Aristotle said, you know, if, you're, if you're acting as a doctor, then you, you, you don't poison somebody. Right. I mean, certain, certain uh, behavioral um, dispositions you know, come, as it were, already colored by the title. That doesn't mean, of course, that there's no decision to be taken, because typically, I, I, um, uh, he, he will say something like, um, your, your brother, you know, your brother is being so unkind to you, so, uh, Repetitus, sort of, how, how, do you, how do you respond to that? Uh, and again, a bit as we said with the, the insult case, well, that's up to him, but I, I, it's my job to be brotherly, in other words, so, so there are these norms. Which, um, which, yes, the, the, I'd say there, there isn't, uh, and again, in, with the, um, the, the passage where you took the, the, the sexual thing, uh, the, the, I mean, certainly, as far as, say, women are concerned, he, he's highly conventionalized. There's not very much reference to women, but oh, where it does come up, it's, it's extremely sort of uh, yeah. uh, standard yeah. male you know, yeah. behavior of the time. Yeah. Um, so, yes, so, so I think if you didn't have some of these sort of uh, backstops or norms, then, of course, people could think, well, well where do you stand within your, in the culture? Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 That's an interesting question. So, um, so I just had one other question, and then we can perhaps open it to the audience, um, uh, where I'm sure there will be many questions and comments. Um, one of the things that, if, if you had said to me, yeah, this is a book of stoic philosophy, I would, from the and coming at this again maybe from a later period, I immediately would have expected a lot of talk about nature mm -hmm. and following nature. Yes. And one of the things that struck me is actually he, he does have the, the famous 
phrase about wanting to follow nature that we're, we're so familiar with in, in, in the histi history of Stoicism and Neo-Stoicism. But in my sense, unless I'm mistaken, it really only comes in quite close to the end. Mm. It's in, uh, I think it's section 49, he does say, I really want to follow nature. That seems interesting to me that he seemed to not be interested in the kind of abstract um, formula, but in the kind of practicalities of mm -hmm. getting through everyday life. He does several times, I think early, early on in... in does he, in, did he I does, miss it? He does say, it. say several times, uh, well, in, in so what the context, he's gone to the bathhouse and people are, are, are jostling him and maybe somebody's trying to steal his clothes and, you know, he's... And, and, uh, and, he, he, and so his res response to that was, well, I didn't only want to go to the baths, I wanted to keep my will in accordance with nature. So right. how would we gloss that? Right. And I think... That, that, that sense of nature is that there's a sort of, there is an, a norm, um, a standard of, of human behavior, which is, the Stoics would call acting with good reason, acting you know, in, in accordance with some kind of uh, understanding of the situation. In other words, well, you, you, what do you expect when you go to the bathhouse? Some people are going to be that way. That's how they are. I mean, it's a bit the way Marcus Aurelius says, you know, when you get up in the morning, say to yourself, you know, there's somebody I'm going to to meet who, you know, who, who is a, a thief and, and maybe a murderer. That's just how, that's life. Uh, so keeping your will in accordance with nature is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a policy of trying to, um, your nature here is your, your capacities as a, a grown-up sort of would-be human rational person. So trying to kind of act with understanding of a situation rather than just acting, you know, on, 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 on impulse. That, that. So that, but the other net sense of nature is, of course, nature can be also used to mean everything else that happens. I mean, the other day we had torrential rain. That was nature. These are, so the, the world outside of our own area, of, of, not just the human world, but the, the, the natural world, we could call it, which in a rather obvious sense is, is a lot of it is outside our control. So you're, part of the Stoic project, which I think he does endorse, even if he doesn't make it so explicit, is you're trying to sort of uh, balance up the way you understand the way the world is outside yourself. I mean, if, if, you, if you live in Guerneville um, in, you know, in, in, in a wintry, in a wet winter, then you, know, you better expect your house will be flooded. Uh, I mean, that's just the way it is. That's the kind of nature of, of uh, but the, the norm of nature is, is, is how I can sort of somehow um, bring my own disposition and values to, to, in a way that there's a kind of harmony between these two things. I'm not, I'm not being caught off balance. Uh, so a lot of it is in this sort of sense of, of um, ad adaptation, a kind of adaptation to, to the way the world is working. Great. Yeah. Maybe we should then open it up to any questions or comments from the audience. Thank you. Are we on live? Yes. We're on. Okay. I'd like to hear what the Stoics have to say about ascribing motive. It's a boundary that I have found challenging in my own life. It's definitely on. <laughs> um, the unkindness or the, the, the person who is rude. I have the choice to not be unkind back. I have the choice not to be rude back. But for all I know, they did not see that as rude. They saw that as honest. Yes. Or transparent or forthright. Yes. Um, the same for the unkind. They never saw that as unkind. They thought that maybe even kind 
um, to tell someone the truth. Mm -hmm. um, whereas in Texas, we might just say blunt, which is what I'm yes. So, so there's this, there's this, I have agency over how I choose to respond just because I think they're rude. I don't need to respond rude back. But I'm also ascribing motive mm -hmm. to, to their action. I'd like to hear a little bit about ascribing motive from, from the story. Yes. Well, I think the, I mean, perhaps the, the example I offered a bit ago with the, uh, the, the, the father of the sick daughter would be with a, ki a kind of example, I mean, of, of how Epictetus thinks you would perhaps handle the uh, unkind friend or whatever it was. I mean, you wouldn't just say, you know, that's not very nice. I mean, you, you, would, you would try to kind of engage them in some way. Do you think that was the appropriate thing to do? What was your reason for doing that? So, so the, you could, uh, I mean, obviously in, in everyday life, you wouldn't perhaps want to kind of get, get so sort of, uh, argumentative with somebody, but but the, I think the idea would be always that people. I mean, there's a sense in which he's treating all all people that we have to deal with as if you know they are they have their own dignity and they have their own reasons. They might be very bad reasons from our perspective. They might be bad reasons objectively, but at least they have reasons. And this is part of I think where where, where, where stoicism is sort of arguing that once we are kind of grown up. We, we always, we do act even if it's unconsciously uh, for reasons, um, and we can be asked what those reasons are. And so, so the, 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 there would be the ordinary sort of responding in a friendly or polite way, but there would also be this invitation to perhaps engage the person and, and ask them what they, what, what, why they think they're behaving the way they, they are. So I think it's, it's this, um, I would say perhaps, one of the chief values of the text today is to help people to think that they actually have got powers that they may not realize they have, offering them a sort of sense of dignity, that they're not victims. They actually something they can always do about their situation, even if, it, even if they end up, say, in, in prison. There's, there's still a way of being in, in, in those situations, or, or if you're you know, very sick, there's still a, an appropriate way to be, which maintains your dignity in some sense. I think that's perhaps very important. Uh, yeah. There, there's something very attractive about the idea uh, that there's a difference between the things that are up to me and the things that are not. But I think what's actually most appealing is the cast of mind that knows the difference, mm -hmm. that has settled that difference. And it seems that much anxiety comes from uh, situations in which we are uncertain about that difference. Mm -hmm. uh, one can imagine many kinds of examples. I just wonder if Stoics have anything to s say about that. Oh, I think. Well, I think the very fact that he he starts the whole um, manual off with with this um, disquisition on the things that are up to us, and then tries to clarify exactly what he means and accepts uh, sort of challenges. Um, uh, uh, I mean, when, when somebody says, you know, well, um, shouldn't, I, shouldn't I desire health? Well, y yes, but only with reserve. I mean, re recognize that, you know, there's going to be something that's outside your control when it comes to your health. Whereas there isn't allegedly going to be things outside your control when it comes to your, your motivation. Now, he probably had no experience of brainwashing. We might, you know, we, and the kind of things that where, I mean, he, he says, surely nobody can ever force you to say, you know, that uh, 
something is, um, say, to the left when it's to the right. Uh, and I think that that's, that's something I think we now know is actually, can, that can happen. P people can be put under such psychological pressures that they, they will say that um, uh, up is down or down is up. Uh, and I mean, he just, I think, what, what was not familiar with that. So those will be extreme cases. But the general point would still perhaps stand that we are, we do have some kind of special charge over what, what we want to do and other people can't make us want things, uh, I mean, leave aside these special cases, uh, against, against what we, we choose. But I just wanted to follow up on Tony's po point, maybe slightly tangentially. I mean, there's this moment where he says in, in, uh, in the 33rd uh, text, he says, draw up right now a definite character and identity for yourself, one that you intend to stick to whether you are by yourself or in company. And, and, the, and I thought, first of all, I thought that was amazing. And then I thought, but wait a minute. What if I don't know who I am? I mean, this would be the modern dilemma, right? Who, who am I? Mm -hmm. Oh, I think my identity is I'm a graduate student, or maybe my identity is I'm a professor. And, and of course, we're always being finding out that we don't know who we think we are. We think we're X and we turn out to be Y, or we think we're, we think we're generous, and we, or we think we're honest, and we turn out to be liars, and so on and so forth. So this idea that you actually can kind of know the difference seems to me really interesting. <laughs> Yes, yeah. Um, and I guess it connects, in some ways, self-possession to self-knowledge in some way, right? Which is a concept we haven't talked about. Yet. Yes. Um, did that, did that, do we say enough in response to? Um, what do we make, um, what do we make of uh, an instance in which I have uh, uh, a relative who is ill, dying, it's not, it, the situation's not in my control, but I don't realize, I don't know that it's not in my control. Yeah. I'm in a quandary. I think something is in my possession, but it's not. Oh, I see. It's not that I'm being controlled, you know, somebody's put a chip in my brain or brainwashed me, but I think I have control over things that in fact I don't. Well, I mean, I think that the, the, the simple of much anxiety. The, the simple answer is that any any act, any any action. Um, I mean, even you know the intention to to stand up. I could at this moment, you know, about to stand up, I could be smitten with total paralysis. I mean, so again, an extreme case. But I think the, the one one of the sort of corollaries to the first um, instruction about you know recognizing what's up to us is, um, I mean, just re read it, because I think that it perhaps, you know, touches your, your point, uh, having sort of introduced the distinction between what's up to us and what is, what is not. Uh, he says, um, uh, if you desire any of the things, if, if you desire any of the things that are not up to us, you are bound to be unfortunate Confine yourself to motivation and disinclination. So these are kind of not, not full-blooded desires or aversions, but motivation and disinclination, and apply these attitudes lightly with reservation. So I think the thought is, well, um, I, the appropriate thing for me to do is to go and look after and do all I can for this, for this relative. But somehow I, I try to have developed a kind of mental state where you act somehow, again, without sort of becoming uh, uh, 
pathological about it, <laughs> you, you recognize that it may not work. I mean, there's, al there's always this sort of li no, little sort of thought at the back of your mind. I'll do it, it, in a way, you could say, well, it, it's an, an incentive to do everything you can because there may be things you can't do. But so the, the notion of effort or striving is, is very much present, I think. It's a work of progress, and it's it's rec it's recognised that it's a di it's difficult. I mean, you're going to fail. Uh, there are a number of examples of that. You know, you keep getting up again and striving with the, with the athletic image. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then uh, Nelly. Yeah. 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 Um, this is a kind of question about the margin at the margins of this. Mm. I'm interested in the difference between us and me. Mm. Uh, even thinking, I mean, think about something like you know, climate change or global warming. So. I'm just interested if there's any place where Epictetus comes up against this issue of the complexity of, do you know what I mean, like causation. Oh, yeah, yeah. I can't do anything about climate change and, you know, you know what I'm saying? So well, there are many, even thinking about Guerneville. Um, yes. So I'm just wondering if that's just a limit. We just don't go there. Because in some ways, it seems like one reason this is so appealing right now is that it is, it, it's like it's great to feel like you can control something. Well, but I mean, there are. Th I mean, wouldn't he? Wouldn't you agree that? I mean, there are things we can. We not as in uh, you know isolated individuals, but certainly as some form of uh, you know group, uh, there are things we can do about about climate change. Um, and I think it's interesting. I've been engaged with quite a lot of discussion with um, one or two of the sort of modern Stoics, uh, the question about ecology. Um, and if you think of nature, external nature, as something, you know, which it's actually sort of we're incumbent on us to, to take care of. It's part of, part of na nature that we belong to it. It's, I think that's one way of trying to sort of disarm the worries a lot of people have about sort of stoic theology. I mean, the, the, God, the God out there, is, it, it, this is not a, a kind of Abrahamic God. It's a God that's part of, I mean, the life force or something that's in nature. Uh, so I think the idea of living in accordance with nature w could also quite easily be interpreted in a, in a look at looking after the planet kind of notion. So there are always things you can try to do, and I think are incumbent on us. So it, I, I think the, the, often in historical periods when, um, when Epictetus and Seneca have been uh, sort of, you know, more widely read than they had, had been until recently, they're, they're, think, they're thought of as, as consolatory. I, mean, I was just reading, uh, Robert Haas reminded me the other day when, when we were having this discussion, uh, I was reading the house, a house for Mr. Biswas, and Mr. Biswas, you know, in, in Trinidad, is always picking up Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius, but then he puts down again because he says, well, I, I, they, they're not giving me solace. Well, but I think that, that is one thing you could try to get out of, but I don't think that's what these texts are at all about. They're not, they're not meant to be consolatory, except at the limit. They're meant to give you a guidance on, on actually an, an action, you know, what, what to do. So, that, that, so the causation is part of us, I think, yeah. Sometimes when I read this in Marcus Aurelius, it seems to be a kind of a pra emotional pragmatism. Mm -hmm. the, uh, but there's, there's also this appeal to the gods, mm. to some kind of absolute value. And I wonder if you can speak about how the, the relativity of pragmatism uh, comports with uh, this, the gods and what is right to do. 
Yes, I, th I mean, I think this is, well, the, uh, as I was saying to Nelly, I mean, the idea of the divine is, is you know, that there's natural causation. Um, the sun rises every day, it, it rains in the winter. The, these are natural occurrences, uh, and somehow they, you know, you know, leaving aside things like tsunamis, uh, they're things we can live with and we need, we need to come to terms with in order to, to adjust. And, and those, those are the works of the gods, we could say. But there is, it's quite true, there is a sense, I mean, like Marcus Aurelius does, does sometimes speak in this sort of amor fati way that whatever, whatever happens is right. And I, 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 Epictetus tends not to do that, and it's not a, a thought I like t so much to go with, because it, it can appear as if the, the kind of passivity side of Stoicism. We, we have to just, it's all in the hands of the gods, a kind of fatalism. And I think, uh, so I, I'm not, I don't, wouldn't, wouldn't want to defend that, that strand of Stoicism, which speaks that way as, as having too much to offer us today. I think if we simply think of natural causality, you know, whether it's to do with our own behavior and, and our own structure or, or the world outside, the, the more we can understand of that, um, the, the more effectively we'll live. I mean, we, 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 are, you know, we obviously haven't, hadn't been realizing until the last decade or two how, how harmful we were uh, behaving towards the planet. I mean, that's something we, we lear we've learned. I mean, so I think there's also this sense in Stoicism that we can always be learning more about, about the way the world is structured. It's, it seems to me one of the, the consolation um, that's here is that he's attesting to is the ability to step back. Mm -hmm. That if, if, my, uh, be, if my actions with respect to climate change uh, bring forth an unfortunateness in me, suffering, anxiety, distress, all these things, I need to look at that, and there's a place where I can step back and 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 mm -hmm. assess. Mm -hmm. That seems to be the consolation here, and the work in progress. Yes, but don't we want also, if this is to be a, a, a practical guide to life, we, we we want some guidance, not just, I mean, not not when things that many would say, oh, well, how terrible this is, and we, we can somehow console ourselves by saying, well, we understand why it was going to happen, but we, we want some guidance for ac action, don't we, and, and initiatives as well, and that, that's what I think he's trying to offer us. In other words, the, the kind of emotional disabling which people, you know, all of us experience from time to time, the reason why he focuses so, uh, so intensely on trying to remove fears, fears of death, fears of failure, is that they, they are disabling for action. I mean, the more we allow our emotions to somehow uh, interfere with our, with our autonomy, the less we can do. I think, I think that would be right. Yeah. Uh, Robert, hi. Uh, thank you, Yael. So one of the contrasts between uh, Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius strikes me to be that Marcus has a much broader, more generous picture of nature, a cyclical view of nature. Nature gives us free gifts, so what 
the things we don't have any control over are also gifts we have to be grateful for. Mm -hmm. And uh, we cannot complain when we lose them either. And this, this picture of nature as generous as giving seems to be something absent in Epictetus. Well, I think, you know, we, in, in this little collection, we've only got a sample. Um, and I, you know, I was particularly focusing on the, um, the way he handles the notion of freedom and, ha and how to be free. Um, I, I think you may be right. I mean, I think, but there, is, there are a number of passages in some depth in, in, in the discourses where Epictetus does um, say why it's, we should think of the world as, as in, in, a, in a kind of Marcus Aurelius-like way as, as providential, and we, we, and, I, and we should be grateful. So I don't think, I, don't th I mean, there may be a difference of emphasis in what you've been reading, um, but um, I think where Epictetus differs particularly from Marcus, I mean, there's a sort of, I, I, find, I find Marcus Aurelius melancholy, uh, uh, I mean, and, and I think one can, I mean, there's a world weariness to him which emerges very clearly, I think, from his role. I mean, he, he, he didn't want to be emperor. He certainly didn't want to be generalissimo of the Roman army. He, want, he wanted to be writing his books and reading. So he, he performs this task with, you know, with great, uh, 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 you know, care. And, but, but, but he, I mean, I think he needs to console himself a great deal. Whereas I th so I think, whereas Epictetus is much more the teacher uh, and it's an interesting fact about Marcus Aurelius that, I mean, the text of Marcus Aurelius, uh, must, which he composed, you know, probably towards the end of his life, it doesn't seem to have become, in, got into the book trade at all. It was out of circulation, it seems, for about 200 years, rediscovered, and then, um, you know, and then it passed down in only about in only one main manuscript, so it was in, unlike Epictetus or Seneca, tons of manuscripts, uh, and it seems as if Marcus Aurelius didn't write it as a as a conventional book. He wrote it as a diary for himself, mm. and and so I think and, uh, whereas Epictetus is 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 definitely he's got an interlocutor all the time. Marcus Aurelius as interlocutor is himself. The actual title of the work it's called Meditations, but the the actual original title is To Himself. Mm. Uh, <laughs> like, like, like Dear Diary, I think. Um, yeah. Maybe we, one, one last question, if there is one. Robert. So, Tony, you mentioned that Epictetus started his life as a slave. Yes. Uh, the sort of ultimate not, lack of power. Yes. Lack of control. Um, and then he goes into fairly standard stoic observations in many ways. Do you see any slave uh, voice, any any remnant of his experience as a slave in the way that he approaches his stoicism? Um, oh, yeah, I think so. I mean, m much more than any of the other stoics. I mean, he, he whether it's the adjective, which you can translate as servile, or or even addressing his interlocutor in a in a somewhat peremptory way as as you slave. Um, and, and so, I mean, in the really long discourse, which uh, I just put some excerpts in the book, the one, one that um, Arian has given the title of, um, in, of, of On Freedom, uh, the, it, there's a counterpoint going on all the time between, say, the man who is, you know, work, working his way up the... Uh, the honor, honor system of the Roman arm, you know, Roman world, and thinks he's becoming, you know, he's becoming a praetor or even maybe may a consul, and thinks he's a great man, and it is totally, you know, oppressed by 
fears and other things. So, so he, the, the higher he goes up the, 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 um, the greasy pole, so to speak, the more enslaved he is to his fears and desires. I mean, you get, you get the same kind of uh, thought in, in Seneca too. But I think, so I think, in Sen but Epictetus, it, it's, 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 it's very common. It, it's, uh, it, most of the discourses will mention slavery in some form or other. Um, and so that it, all the time, the, the challenge being that what, who is the real slave? Is it, is, it, is it chattel slavery or is it emotional and, and intellectual slavery? Uh, that's the kind of devil I'm, I think. Yeah. Thank you so much, Tony. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this Berkeley Book Chat, and we encourage you to join us in person or via podcast for future programs in this series.